This night's from Trucker's Weather Forecast. The service is WRBA and that's the Virginia. And we are at uh, 19 to the hour. So let's do this. We'll come back with some regional weather here in a little bit. Dear Kitchen Display Center. Hello? Anybody hear me? All right, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Oh, man. They haven't changed that jingle yet. <laughs> Stereophonic. What is that? <laughs> Hello, Richmond. Again. The best personalities, like Alden Aero. I would suggest you do not try this with your records. Now, who's this on the phone? Thomas. Thomas what? Haskins. Thomas, where are you from? What do you want to hear tonight? 345-WRXL. Because good friends share. You are listening to live radio, AM 1140, WRVA Richmond. So the next time you turn on the radio, it'll make you happy. Richmond's number one. Number one. We'll make yeah, it man. a psychedelic 60s. <laughs> WDC operates at a power of 100 watts from an antenna located high atop the Fine Arts Building, located on the University of Richmond campus. Tune in and turn on the time tunnel. We will be back on the air soon and can continue to take your request at 345-0106. It's Y101, Richmond's new rock. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. I'm just kidding. What we're going to do right here is yeah. go back. We're going to go back. <laughs> Way back. Yeah, back why not? Time. How far back? When the only people that existed were troglodytes. We now conclude our broadcast day, but please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning for another day of your favorite music on The Address of the Stars. Let's take the average caveman at home, listening to his stereo. You know, it's a weird thing, memory. I mean, this podcast is all about memories, how you remember things. This podcast, by the way, Give Me Radio or Give Me Death, my love letter to the Richmond radio I grew up listening to. My name is Chris Padgett. My fake radio name was Charlie. How's it going? Yeah, memory's a weird thing. Uh, The stuff that you think you remember that didn't actually happen, that usually gets dispelled by a sibling or a parent, that, that didn't happen. That didn't go that way at all. You know, you just make stuff up in your brain. This is how it went. Uh, The things that you remember people telling you, the... People that you think you remember. Um, so many of the people that I've spoken to in this podcast are, they were disembodied voices coming out of an electric box next to my bed. Or they were the disembodied voices down a phone line when I was inappropriately calling radio stations at 7 o'clock in the morning when I was supposed to be getting ready for school. Um, the people that I remember working with in some cases... And going back and like rehashing stories with them, being like, oh, that's what happened? There was a lot of that in this week's episode um, with my very special, and I mean special, with every sense of the word guest, Mad Dog. If you don't know Mad Dog's real name, you probably don't need to know Mad Dog's real name. (laughs) It's just Mad Dog. And I had very vague recollections of Mad Dog, because we only worked together very briefly. And frankly, I should have asked him what exactly our roles were at the radio station at the time. I mean, I was doing nights, 
And maybe I did some weekends and maybe that's when I crossed paths with him or maybe he did overnights. I don't honestly remember. But I do remember Mad Dog. I remember Mad Dog very well and very vividly because he's a very vivid character with, uh, with a great history in the city of Richmond. And I think a lot of that history, save for one thing, which we'll talk about, a lot of that history is forgo- has been forgotten. And, it, and he brought up stuff in our conversation. I was like, oh my God, I had completely forgotten that happened. Or I had completely forgotten about Rockline, which I'm sure all of you, most of you that are listening right now are like, oh, of course, you idiot, Rockline. Well, I'm, you know, I'm 47 and Rockline was probably relevant when I was like, you know, nine and wasn't going to shows at Twisters or Rockets or Metro or whatever it was at the time. But there was definitely stuff that he brought up. I was like, wow, I had completely forgotten about that. And memory is a funny thing. The stuff that you choose to remember and the stuff that you choose to forget. And then you'll you'll see something or you'll smell. Smell's a big one for me. I'll smell something and boom, I am right back in the elevator at the Avamir. And there's a handful of people who even know what that even means. Uh, or I'm right back in my grandparents' house. Dial soap. Boom. Every time. Grandparents' house. Like that bathroom, that black and white tile. I can tell you exactly what that bathroom looked like. And it's dial soap every time. So yeah, memory's wild. And uh, that's what this is all about. Um, my partner says all the time that I am like the most nostalgic person that she has ever met. And uh, now we're, you know... 15 episodes in, whatever, to uh, just a straight-up nostalgia trip. I did mark this episode as um, explicit because um, (laughs) Mad Dog broke the seal on the curse words, and I just, you know, I went right along with him. So uh, (laughs) it's not... It's not that bad, but there's definitely a couple S-bombs in this episode. So, you know, if that bothers you, maybe skip this one. Otherwise, I would tell you, you're missing out if you skip the Mad Dog episode. Normally, I start my conversation with my guests uh, asking them about their first uh, on-air shift. But uh, I I had a little preface with Mad Dog. So here's my conversation with the one, the only, Mad Dog. This is going to illustrate how little I actually know about you other than, you know, our brief <laughs> our brief crossing of paths at VGO way back when and then, you know, what I know about you from the internet, but were you even a I met you as a radio guy. Right. Were you a radio guy? Um only to actually only for the about the 4 years I was at VGO. Yeah. And I wish I also did, you know, side shows on um DCE which was kind of a funny thing because uh, they had talked to me about doing it. And I knew a bunch of people there and they, um, I remember talking to Paul Chagru, who was the music director at the time or program yep. director, I guess. at VGO. And Paul's reaction was great. He goes, go, please do. Cause I said, you know, I don't want to be a conflict. He goes, please do it. Get that shit out of your system. So when you're here, <laughs> you'll be a little more contained. I'm like, cool, Paul. <laughs> The truth is the majority of my Richmond radio experience, more than that four years, was for a lot of years, I did a lot of stuff that tied into radio and radio people and working with bands, producing bands, putting out records, doing stuff where I knew, you know, a lot of the radio, ton of the radio people, 
um, before I was ever actually on the air. Okay. So do you remember your first air shift? Yeah, my first actual air shift was XL 102 had okay. a Sunday, had a show they were doing for a while called the Amateur Hour. I don't know if you remember that at all. No, I don't. And I don't, I don't remember how they set it up, but what they did was they would bring, um, they would choose non-radio people to come in on a Sunday night and do like a two or three hour show. Oh, wow. And I don't remember, I think you probably had to write in and maybe tell them why you should do it. Now, I had already done, been doing a lot of things with, I don't know if you want to get into it too much, but with products I put out and things that I was kind of known a bit. And give you know, me, can you have a for example? Like, what is a product you put out in that era? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> we're going to get sidetracked really big here. If you're not totally careful. fine. Um, well, the first one was a product called uh, Crocker Shirt. And it was in late 70s when the preppy phase was really big. And I okay. put out a product with an upside down dead crocodile on it called Crocker Shirt. Okay. And I sold. I don't know, quarter of a million of them, something, oh tons God. of them. And yeah. was taking ads and Rolling Stone and all over the place and then got a lawsuit from Isad Lacoste, yeah. um, who sued me. And of course, I got, you know, shit tons of publicity for that. Um, it was in, I remember doing interviews with over 300 radio stations, newspapers, and TV stations over a period of about a week after that hit. Yep. So I had that, and that was real big until, you know, we finally settled the lawsuit. Um, a lot of publicity. Then I had done Earl the Dead Cat. No um, shit, that was you? Yeah, that was me. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did all, you know, all that kind of stuff that I was doing. Earl the Dead Cat, which was the stuffed toy of a yeah. flat dead cat. Um, that was me. Um and I was doing all kinds of things. So I was, you know, I had a bit of a reputation. So I imagine that helped XL102 um, decide to bring me on the amateur hour. Okay. So, so what is, so you said it was a couple of hours and did you get to program your own radio show? What was it? They let, they, what they did was you could bring in your own records, do whatever you want for those couple wow. of hours. Okay. Um, one of their jocks ran the board because of course, you know, walking in, you had no idea how to really use it. Sure. And um, I don't really remember a lot of it because I'm not sure, to be honest, I don't know what kind of condition I might have been in when I did it that <laughs> night. It's hard to say, but it was a lot of fun. I remember, you know, I was careful. I think when we did it, they might have, before I played each record, they wanted to know what it was just to make sure, you know, you weren't putting anything over the air that would get them in trouble. But yeah. they made it, they let you do pretty free form. And so I was doing some bits and I was doing, playing a lot of music. And that was the first time I was actually on the air. Did you get the bug from that? Or was that kind of like, okay, did that and on to the next thing? Well, I mean, I kind of did because even before that, I, I mean, I had done a lot of studio work. I worked in the studio. I worked in bands. I produced Like bands. recording studios. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the studio and recording atmosphere was I was pretty comfortable with. And I did some voice work on some commercials. Mm. And so, you know, I'd always liked radio. Um, I'd always thought I should do radio. Mm. Um, I just, for all these different things I did, I just never got to it till that was the first time. And yeah. I mean, I guess I did have the bug because it was a blast. Yeah. It was a complete blast. 
And can I remember, I think they brought me back for a second one. They did kind of a best of the amateur hour and brought a few people back and I got to do some more. And for a long time, I kept thinking, I kept thinking it'd be really cool. The The only kind of issue I had was I was doing so many other things that I wasn't sure I wanted to devote myself to radio. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is why when the opportunity for VGO came up, it was absolutely perfect. Uh, you were producing bands, doing some studio work. Is, did you work with anybody? Did you produce anyone that we'd be familiar with today? Well, um, I mean, they were Richmond-based bands. I was working, well, aside from the bands I was in, or some things I did, um, the biggest one is probably Single Bullet Theory. Okay, um, yep. Which uh, I, Carlos Chafin, who is now at in your owns in your ear recording studio in Richmond, he was at Alpha Audio then. He and I oh, produced gosh, the demo wow. tapes that got the band their contract with CBS Nemper. Yes. But we did that. Um, uh, Susie Saxon and the Anglos. I don't know yeah. if you remember them. I produced all of their, well, most of their albums. Later on, Bruce Olson did some of a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I put them, I ended up forming an independent record company, Brat Records, in order to put the Anglos records out. Cool. So like with that, I I put out the records. And so I was doing the radio promotion. I was dealing with radio stations all over. So I was very used to working with radio people and music directors too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yep. And probably one that, you know, most people wouldn't know, but I'm not sure what years you were in Richmond, but do you remember the song Algae Water by any chance? I don't know. You remember about 1981, there was a big algae bloom and you couldn't drink the water? I was six, but I do remember (laughs) having to go to the local fire station and getting water from the big tanks. Exactly. What what happened, uh, there was, so people can understand too, there was a big algae bloom in the James River where it was just covered with algae and Richmond gets their drinking water from the James River. So all the drinking water suddenly just tasted like a swamp and disgusting and they told people not to drink it. Like you said, people were going to Bird Park where there were springs, they were bringing trucks around with water, but they said it was okay to shower in it. And um, it just smelled horrible. So at the time, Carlos and I were producing the demo tapes for Single Bullet Theory um, when this hall hit. So that was a big topic of discussion in the studio, of course. So we were driving home one night. We would record in the evening and probably usually knocked off, I don't know, four in the morning or whatever. And so we were, you know, I think he was driving me home and we was talking about, we God, I really need a shower, but God, that stuff stinks. That water is gross. <laughs> and I just started singing the Standell's Dirty Water, but started putting in lyrics for Richmond and started going, you know, uh, down by the river, down by the banks of River James, you know, about the nasty water. I said, and you love that algae water. Oh, okay. Richmond, you're my home. Yeah. And we just started laughing in the car. So we went back to Carlos's house, started writing the lyrics. His sister, who he lived was living with at the time, got up and came in. The three of us finished up the lyrics. And Carlos and I, of course, said, what? We need to go in tomorrow and record this. We yeah. need to do this song. 
Um, because of course he was at work at Alpha Audio. He had access. We could do it. We cleared it with Nick Colloran, who owned the studio. And he's like, sure, have fun. Go for it, guys. So we got the Good Humor Band, who were friends of ours. I had actually been in the Good Humor Band um, oh, probably about six years before. Okay. And we thought about it and knew that the Good Humor Band was the only band that we knew that could reproduce this. So we went in the studio the next day, recorded it, mixed it, sent it off to be pressed the next in one day, really fast. I took tapes to all the radio stations in Richmond and said, yeah. you know, it's being pressed fast. We'll have it back in about five days. You know, here's a mass, here's a copy if you want to air it. Sure. Well, the short version is, and we, so I named the band Jet Trash. It was on Swamp Water Records and Tapes. Um, <laughs> and we, I made up these posters that said from the upcoming project, the science project, from the album Science Project, just, just totally made up stuff. So anyway, we pressed these. I took it to the radio stations. Within about four days, it was the number one song on six radio stations in Richmond. Um, I got the records back, got them to all the record stores. We were selling the hell out of them. Everything was going great. Um, unfortunately, in two weeks, the water cleared up. And of, so, course. of course, the record was dead. Yeah. But for two weeks, we were the number one. We had the number one song on like six stations in Richmond. That's amazing. So the, the water cleared up before the Standells could issue a cease and desist. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting the cease and desist, but the water makes sense too. Yeah, exactly. That's and funny. That, I completely forgot about that algae bloom thing. And then the other thing I remember from being a little kid was the tire fire, which I think was in like Hopewell somewhere. Yeah, there was a, there was a yeah, massive was tire fire. Yeah. 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 And I just, I, I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. So I couldn't wrap my head around what those things meant. But in, I would never would have thought of the algae bloom until you mentioned it and told that's all I remember of it is going to get potable water at the uh, fire station on yep. horse pen. Yep, yep, exactly. You can still find algae water on YouTube and you know, it's floating around there. <laughs> uh, pun intended. That's good. You had this weird kind of like backstage view of how radio worked before you even got into it. Yeah. I, oh, you know, I did. you knew what a music director was. You knew what a program director was before you even tried to actually do radio. Right, because in most of these, I had, you know, in one way or another, I had been uh, dealing with the radio stations and dealing with these people, trying to get them to play records or just, yeah. or in the other with the products I put out, they would get me and interview me. And the, so it worked both ways. So I had a good idea about the workings of them in general. Sure. And, sure. you know, having been a musician and uh, for years and work in the recording studio like that. I also, you know, had a good feel for equipment and sound and boards and how, you know, how stuff worked in general. Sure. So and you did the amateur hour a couple of times. How did yeah. that transition into, did you go to DCE next? No, actually VGO, it was probably, it was probably up to 10 years later that I got onto VGO. Oh, so say. that... Okay, well, yeah, that track. So you did no radio from the amateur hour up until the early 90s. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, I did some voice work in the studio. I did no radio okay. work, though. Um, so how did and, that happen? Well, how I got into VGO was, for years, I had known um, Rick Stanley, Eric E. Okay. Stanley, as he was okay. known on the air. Yep. 
uh, because he had, you know, Rick had produced uh, mm -hmm. bands and put on shows. Uh, was pretty long in the time. scene, in the right. scene, yeah. And I Loved knew the him scene. from there. Um, partly too, we may have to sidetrack a second here from the Richmond Rock Line, also, which, if you remember, was a phone number that you could call three five three Rock and find out who was playing at what clubs the next few nights. And that was Chuck Wren, Rock and Daddy, and myself. We did it. Okay. Um, and we did that for 14 years, actually. Three times wow. a week, we recorded these. And so through that, too, you know, I knew I had known Rick from around town. And then, you know, he knew me and the clubs knew me from, uh, you know, from the rock line. And so I'd run into Rick all the time. And I don't know, we talked, we Somehow we got to talking about it. He, he had done the Bebop Boogie and Blues review for a yeah. long time. But he did it. I mean, he was doing it before he went to VGO. Okay. And I remember running into him at a show one time. And he goes, he's like, dog, goes, listen. He goes, you know how you've been talking about trying to do radio? And I think you need to do it. You should. You're good. Yeah, you should be doing that. He goes, I'm at VGO now. He goes, they, they're new. They don't have a lot of people. They need part-timers gave me the name of John Crowley and said, you know, the general manager and said, yeah. uh, talk to John Crowley. I'll put in a good word for you. I think you should be on there. It should be easy. And I saw Crowley and we talked for like, I don't know, I want to say a half hour in his office. And he said, yeah, come on in, you know, a couple of days for a little training and we'll put you on weekend overnights and, you know, get you going on here. Wow. So that's how I got it. You know, Eric, he got me in there. That's a completely different era what's essentially just some dude off the street being like, I want to try radio and the general manager being like, sure. Why don't you try it with my radio station? You know, uh, like, well, no, it is true that he knew who I was, knew I had some sure. background, some credentials, but I mean, I remember walking away too, going almost like this was too easy. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, you knew, you know, from being at VGO, you knew, I mean, that was especially in the early days of it an entirely different radio station. I mean, except for maybe GOE back in those days. Well, it was a radio but, station run by radio guys. It wasn't, a it wasn't a corporation. It was a radio station run by radio people. Who were into radio and into the music. Right. And I mean, when I went there and I started, we had a lot of leeway in what we played. I don't remember offhand exactly how they set it up. But we didn't, like, there wasn't even a playlist in the beginning when I first started. Yeah. You know, you had their music library. I think you had to get either permission to play other songs, but it was very free form. And yeah. they relied on people, you know, who knew their music and had a good feel for it and could do good segues and also knew not to play things too often, not to do things like I did when I forgot to play the radio edit and some wrong words got right. on the air. Yeah, but, sure. but they were cool with it. You know, yeah. not cool. I mean, no, the light went off and, you know, Crowley was on the phone saying, uh, uh, Mad Dog, be careful. That's remember, the album version. I, if yes. I remember, he said, take that copy and go put it on my desk as soon as you have a chance. So nobody will play that version again. <laughs> but, you know, they I mean, I know you talked to, you know, you talked to Steve Forrest from Paul Chagru and the whole thing right. was just a different feel. Yeah, it was it was people who are into music and into radio doing radio right. um i mean they even gave me a 
I guess, I don't know, I was there, it wasn't too long I was there and they gave me a Sunday night show um, mm. where I talked to them about playing music that they didn't normally play. They said, mm. go ahead. So I started a show called uh, The Outer Limits, which I did on Sunday nights. Mm -hmm. We had, I think we had, I want to say we, it was a three hour show, two or three hour show. And for a while I did it with Brett Cassis for a while I did it myself. Um, and I would play new things that came in or things that I knew that, you know, the station wasn't going to play, or there were songs that I would play that later the station would pick up. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff the station wouldn't play, but sure. you know, they also trusted me to know that I wasn't going to just play stuff that was totally whacked out. Nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is why they put me on DCE later on. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it was really cool because, you know, they just said, go ahead. You know, and they wow. really, I know they listened and they rarely gave me any guidance or gave me any crap about it or said they didn't like stuff. They right. were pretty good about letting me do what I want. And I think it goes with their whole station philosophy, which was, if you get good people who know their music and know what they're doing, you can trust them to do good things on there. You don't mm. have to just tell them when to do every song and how to do it like that. I mean, VGO, in the, especially in the earlier times, they were playing all kinds of stuff that nobody was playing. Well, they were playing a lot of Amer what became known as Americana later. Right. But at the time, right. didn't even have a label. Right. You know, when we were playing, you know, early Lyle Lovett and playing all these things that you wouldn't hear on a kind of rock radio station. I well, mean, that's what Steve, when I talked to Steve Forrest, he and I both to this day do the same thing completely unwittingly. Uh, but we'll, we'll hear a song and go, oh, VGO would have played that. Mm -hmm. Like that, that yeah. sounds like a VGO record, yeah. you know, and we still do it. <laughs> well, and it's funny how many songs I will hear too that are older from then. And I go, Oh my God, that was a VGO song. And yep. either you didn't hear it in a lot of other stations or you did, you know, six months later and yep. you realized that, you know, it was a big song at VGO long before that. Sure. Um, now, I mean, it's one of those things I really, you know, regret the condition of radio in general because, you know, how it's gotten, so, you know, so programmed in corporate. And it, I mean, it always was to a large extent. But when you had stations like GOE, and VGO, um, you know, in DC, of course, HFS stations that, you know, they were about the music. They were about people playing good music. Yeah. Which gives them a lot of leeway. So what were you doing for a day job at, at the time? What was, and, and even that 10 years before, up until the, your time at VGO, were you still producing records? And I mean, what, well, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a lot of things. I mean, I was, I was but that's I, kind of always what you've done, isn't it? Yeah, you just kind of done is. a lot of stuff. It is. I was producing records. I was putting out those novelty gift items like, you know, Crocker Shirt and Earl the Dead Cat and those different things that I was doing that. I was doing the Richmond Rock Line. I was writing, advertising, copywriting. Mm. Um, I, I always, writing has always been through everything. And I, you know, continue to do that. I would, you know, writing a lot of commercials and sometimes going into the studio and producing the commercials too. Interesting. Um, okay. So it was always a lot of different things like that. Yeah. I've always been very non-focused. 
Was Rockline a money-making venture? Um, it was supposed Ish. to come sort of be. No, and, <laughs> you know, no, we actually lost money. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was theoretically for profit. We did it that we charged the clubs. I don't remember, like twenty-five bucks, fifty bucks a month. I don't know something. It wasn't much. Sure, but between the costs we have, we had two answering machines, two telephone lines that rotated. Um, that wasn't that much, but we had our time in it. And basically we had figured out that every rock club that ever went out of business during those 14 years did so owing us a lot of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't care. I mean, we started the rock line. Um, I knew Chuck ran for years and I remember running into him in a club, I believe it was Stonewall Cafe one night, and somehow we were talking about some bands, and something like, I went and saw a band, he goes, I didn't even know they were in town, he told me about something, I said, I didn't hear they were, and we started saying, you know, there needs to be a way you can find out about this stuff, so I remember that night, we were talking about it, and of course, obviously, it was in a bar, we were drinking, and we ended up with, I'm going, man, I should, I, I think I should do that, and Chuck's going, that's a really good idea. I think I should do that. And we finally looked at each other and went, well, that's stupid. Why don't we both do it together? So we did. And within about a week, yeah. I had, you know, I had an office because I was doing all these, pro, you know, like all the novelty gift items and things. So I had an office I worked out of and um, I got extra phone, new phone lines and the answering machines, you know, and we just go in, you know, sit there and we, it was just the worst setup possible. <laughs> you know, it was basically a decent home stereo and I had the microphone and we would actually turn the speakers around behind us so we could play music that was picked up on the microphone because I didn't even have a mixer when we first started. Funny. And we just do this. We had fun. And we, like I said, we did it for 14 years. Wow. Uh, three times a week. Um, and no. We were supposed to actually at least break even, but I'm pretty sure it probably, I don't know, it might have, we either broke even or it cost us a little money. I don't know. Sure. And it makes sense too, in that, you know, there were probably a lot of the bands that you worked with and the artists that you worked with, you ended up promoting through the rock line and then the, you know, bands that you were trying to book into the local clubs, they were, you know, advertising. So it all kind of was circular. Yeah. And, And the other good part is while we were doing it, Basically, for I think those 14 years, I probably hardly ever paid to get into a club, if ever. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I got to see, uh, I don't know, thousands of bands. Who knows? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It was the perks. The perks. So talk about the DCE thing for a second, because I have a little bit of DCE experience, too. A very small amount. But what happened there? Were you doing that at the same time that you were doing VGO? Yeah, what happened was, I mean, I had listened to DCE for years, mostly same. because um, I still do. I listen to a lot of college radio. Because the problem is with most radio, that's the only place you're going to hear new, different, interesting stuff. Yeah. And, you know, of course, with the, the side caveat that you're just as liable to tune in on a show that you hate everything they play. But that's sure. college radio for you. Yeah. Um, so I always listened to DCE and I knew, it, you know, I knew a number of people who were on there. I knew people who had been on, I don't know if you remember color radio. There was a phase when cable first kind of started make continental cable made headway where a bunch of people started a radio station on, I want to say it was channel 36 and they just did, it was just color bars, hence the name color radio, 
but they were brought, they were doing radio on there. Wild. I don't remember yes. that at all. Yeah. And there were a whole bunch of people I knew. And Ooh. I'm not sure why, by all rights, I probably should have had a show there, but I'm not sure why I didn't for whatever reason. But I knew, you know, um, a whole bunch of people, Terry Ray, uh, Chuck Ray, I think Chuck was on there. I don't know, there's a whole bunch of people on there. And the, a few of them were also overflow. There was always, you know, they were overflowing the WDCE, which was kind okay. of an odd station because it was the University of Richmond station. Right. But they always had a good number of non-student shows who did, students who did shows. And I don't, I'm not sure how that came about or how they did it, but they had a combination of both. And anyway, I knew a few of the people, Fontaine and various people who were on there. Jimmy Blackford had a show at the time, Mike Joyner. I had talked to them a couple of times about doing a show. And for some reason, nothing ever happened with it. And then while I was on BGO, I got to talking to somebody over there. And they said, um, I think I said something about doing the Outer Limit show. And I said, there was even stuff that I'd like to do that I couldn't even, I knew I shouldn't do there either. And they're like, right. Well, you ought to come to DCE because you, know, you can do whatever the hell you want, really. Sure, yeah. And yeah. so I talked to them and they said, sure, we can do it because they only did one out, you know, it was like one shift a week for two hours or something like that. It was so, of course, I had to, I knew I needed to clear it because, you know, with uh, the powers that be at VGO. Sure. Um, so I went to, I don't know, I ended up going to Crowley, but I think I started with Paul Chagru. And his first response, I said, well, I was thinking of I'd really like to do a show on DCE and I could do it under, you know, using another name or something, but I need to clear it with you. And he, his first reaction was, do it. You need to do it. You can do it under your own name. That's fine. I want you to get all that shit out of your system over there. So you're not tempted to play stuff you shouldn't play here. And I just burst out laughing. It's like, okay, you get it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Let that be the sandbox. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so I started doing a, I, I believe it was a Saturday morning show on DCE um, just on Saturday mornings for two or three hours. And I would completely just bring my own records in with me. Um, mm -hmm. I remember it was almost, mostly vinyl probably and some cd yeah. and i just go in and i would just totally freeform it whatever i felt sure. like doing which i always liked because yeah. i mean i would you know i could segue from you know the cramps to you know duke ellington to whatever you wanted to do as long as it worked out yeah um and it was a blast it was a lot of fun i you know it really was a chance to just do what i really would like to do on it because yeah. even as much as I said on VGO, you had a lot of leeway, you know, you knew you had where your limits were and you had to work within those. And at DCE, there pretty much were no limits as long as you didn't do anything that would get them in trouble with the FCC. Yeah. Don't violate the license and you're good. Exactly. Don't put the that's license That's about all risk. it yeah. took. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing there? Uh, other than being a listener, cause I grew up, I grew up not far from the university of Richmond campus. So it came in really well at my parents' house. That was actually technically my first time on the radio by myself was at DCE. And I had a friend from high school who did a jazz show there and he knew that I was interested in radio and had dabbled in it in high school. 
And he said, hey, you know, I've got to go out of town this weekend. Can you do my jazz show for me so I don't lose my spot? And I was like, sure. And it was the same deal where it was, you know, it, I think pretty, I'm pretty sure it was records. It might have been CDs or a little bit of both. And literally just grabbed like the names that I recognized. So it was like a lot of Louis Armstrong, you know. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, this is the jazz show, you know. <laughs> But that's my one and only connection to DCE. But it's interesting because you're the first one to bring up DCE that I've spoken to. Um, and it was important enough to me that I even put it in the intro to this podcast because I do think it's like, you know, it's important to the fabric of Richmond Radio. Well, and actually, one of, there were things here. I mean, you look at DCE and I don't know if you know Fontaine. She's still got a show on there. She's been on there for probably so. 30 years. She's still doing a show on there. Yeah. One of the shows on there that made me, that I always admired, made me want to uh, get on radio and do the more, like I said, the more freeform kind of programming was, I think it was on Friday nights. They, he called it Friday Night Fish Fry. His name was Richard <laughs> Sarve. And he was doing things on radio that I, musically that I'd never really heard. Like I said, huh. just... He was the one that would combine, you know, he could go from, you know, punk to classical to something else and bounce back and forth and make it all work, which, yeah. you know, you can do that and not make it work. You can do that and know what you're doing and make it work. And I remember just sometimes being in awe of hearing a segue and going, that should not have worked at all, but that was great. <laughs> that didn't make sense, but at the same time, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you go, you know, it wasn't jarring. It worked. But, you know, why should nobody else place does things like that? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I um, think to a lot of people that I know in Richmond, too, I mean, I remember, I think Eric e. Stanley was on DCE for a good while. Um, yeah. He did a show, too. I mean, a lot of people who actually in radio would go to DCE or either came from there or would go to DCE. Um to be able to do that, to do, you know, cut loose and do the things they really wanted to do that were a little more creative musically. Sure, yeah. Um, so when when did you wrap up at VGO? Did you go out the same time that I did when the buzz took over? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I I think a little before. I think they had. I think they had. I guess I don't know. I guess they had sold it, and I think, but it hadn't changed yet. And they were talking to me and said, you know, you could go ahead and you know we could talk about your staying and I had no desire to. Yeah. Um, Cause even at that point, VGO, they did get to a point after a couple of years where suddenly they started, you know, slowly tightening up how much leeway you had tightening it up yeah. till near the end, there was a playlist you followed. And yeah. then once the buzz was coming in, you knew it was going to just get even worse. Yeah. So was that the end of radio for you when you left VGO? Or did you leave it behind? Yeah, I did. And I actually was sort of, you know, I had considered doing more, but part of the problem, mm. part of the thing is on the one hand, I was still doing a lot of different things and didn't want to just do radio, um, which is, and there was really nothing else in Richmond. I mean, yeah. I continued on DCE, but sure. there was no other radio station because since I wasn't doing it as a career, I could afford to be a brat about it and say, yeah. you know, if I can't play stuff that I, <laughs> I kind of like doing it, I don't really want to do it. 
Sure. Um, which is different if you're doing it for a career, as you know, you know, a lot of times you, you'll either move to another city to do what you want, you know, a good station, or you'll be doing, you know, suddenly doing a format in the town you're in that you don't really want to do because you yep. want to stay in radio and it's a salary. Yep. But because I wasn't in that position, wasn't doing that, um, I didn't continue. There was no other, at that point, once VGO was bought by the buzz and that happened, there was no other radio except for DCE in Richmond that I wanted to be on. So we wrapped up, VGO wrapped up in like 90. Four, five, somewhere in there, something around something there, like that. Yeah, somewhere in that range uh, is your lasting legacy to the city of Richmond, um, which is the Tacky Lights tour. Oh yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> which actually did tie into radio a little bit. I personally remember Earl the Dead Cat, so I do remember that. Um, and what was the other thing? I'm sorry, I just forgot the shirt. The Crocker shirt. I don't remember that, but I just think I was just too young. But I definitely 100% the Tacky Lights tour is in my wheelhouse. Was that your doing? And like, what what was the whole process there? And why did it become such a thing? Do you think? Well, okay. The it was my thing. I mean, people have been decorating their houses. You know, I didn't start that for sure. But what happened was a couple of friends and I, again, Carlos Chafin, he and I were, you know, from thick and thin through all this. He yep. and his sister and I got into going around Christmas time. We'd go check out a few of the elaborately decorated houses that they knew about. Uh, yep. They were from Richmond, so they knew them better. Yep. And we did this for a couple of years. And then I remember one year around 85, I think it was 86, somewhere around there. Um, I was going with his sister Gay and we were driving around and looking at the houses and I was like, you know, I know there are a lot more houses decorated like this, but yeah. that we don't know about, you know, they're, they got to be around. We only know a couple parts of town, a few houses, you know, there's got to be a way to find out about them. And so I went, we're going to have, I'm going to start a contest. Okay. Within a couple of days, I came up with uh, Richmond's uh Tacky Xmas Decoration Contest and Grand Highly Illuminated House Tour. Okay. And I put out a press release and I got it to all the newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, said, I'm holding a contest to find the best decorated houses in Richmond. And of course, like I said earlier, you know, with all the things I had done, I had the contacts and people loved it. It's like, oh, another fun, wacky thing. The paper, everybody ran this thing. And I said that I'm, and I said, you know, I'm going to hold a contest. I'm going to have, you know, people can enter their houses and we uh, will have a bus tour, an official tour as a part of it. Well, the press release hit the newspaper. Um, I started getting calls all over the place from people who had decorated houses or new decorated houses. I started to put it together and decide what I was going to do. I had categories and judging sheets. I was going to get celebrity judges. Um, Tim Timberlake <laughs> did it. At, yeah. I don't remember who was the first year, but uh, Tim Timberlake, all the you know, different radio people. Dick Hungate did it, who was out at XL 102. Mm-hmm. Um, people from the newspaper, Chuck Wren, who was kind of my cohort in it. We went and, around and, and purely for bragging rights, right? There was no, there wasn't a $10,000 grand prize or anything. It was just. Well, I said there were going to be prizes for first, second, and third pre- place. Okay. 
Okay. I never said what they were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so we went out and judged. So I got a few people together. We went out in cars in a car and judged it. And I made up all these categories for a judging sheet: grand wattage, um, incongruity factor, because it was which was inspired by one house that had a Santa next to an ET up on a roof. Sure. And I said, you know, you get extra points for that. You know, yep. sound, motion lights. At one time I had the acid flashback category, judging category. <laughs> there was the holy shit factor was a big one. If mm. we pulled up to the house and you went, holy oh, shit, shit, they get bonus points. <laughs> so we, of course, we took like bottle of wine and, you know, if I remember, I got like the worst wine. Somebody reminded me that we stopped at McDonald's. I told the judges we'd go for dinner. So we went to McDonald's. I had to keep the tacky theme going. Sure. High class affair. Exactly. So we did the judging and I said that we're going to do this bus tour. So I got sent out another press release and said, um, tickets are going to be on sale, $10 a ticket for the bus ride. And my original idea was to get one of those Richmond trolleys that they uh -huh. had just started. Yep. And then I started thinking, well, they only hold, I think, like 25 people or something like that. And I said, no, it's got to be better than that. So I went to wind transportation, wind bus yep. lines, and I rented a bus, you know, one of the big 44-seater buses. Well, it ran in the newspaper and I guess radio, I don't remember who all, you know, said that. Tickets were going to be on sale and gave my office number. And within 20 minutes after the time it was going to be, it was sold out. So I added wow. a second, I called up and said, Can I get a second bus? He said, Sure. Announced a second bus that sold out within half a day. I thought about a third bus, but I got scared. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. I said, Okay, I have no idea what, what I'm getting into hand. here. We better just yeah. stop. So I started telling people that they could, people would keep calling and said, you know, can we get on the bus? I said, no, buses are full. But tell you what, we're leaving from right in front of my office, which was in Scott's edition at the time. And I said, we're leaving there. Just show up at six o'clock and follow oh along. I'll God. hand out maps to you. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> yeah, you can feel this one coming, can't you? Oh, no. So, <laughs> so that day, um, I printed up maps on my copier. Um, sure you know, tell it with lists of all the houses, where we're going to go. When we left, the two buses left and there were an estimated, the, new, the media estimated there were over a hundred cars following us. Good God. Um, I had gotten a keg of beer for each bus sure. and all these cheap Christmas cookies from people's drug and awesome. all this stuff just to, you know, go and, which is why, of course, like everything else, I didn't make any money on it. Um, and we went out and we toured all the houses and we, people would start singing. I remember one house that had all blue lights. They got out and just out of nowhere, people started singing, it's going to be a blue, blue Christmas. Nice. Um, and the people at the houses had no idea what was going on. They didn't know we were coming. When we got to the three winning houses, Chuck Wren and I went up there and we awarded the prizes. And yeah. I was wearing a tuxedo with all these Christmas lights around me and all this stuff. And we walked up to this house and we just ring the bell and tell them, hi, we're doing this tour and you, you won third place in this contest. They had no idea what was going on. Sure. Matter of fact, one of them, Frank Hudak at one house, <laughs> he was very gracious about it. 
and he took it. And was, but he told me later, he was like going, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't yeah. know if you guys were making fun of me. What was happening here? He goes, until I saw these, you know, like a hundred people and all these cars following that just, you know, everybody was having a good time. Yeah. So I did, you know, so, and there was new media coverage, all the, you know, TV stations were all over it and, you know, come and interview it and follow it. So I did that for about three years. The next year I did a third bus. And then I think I did that two years and I just, and then I stopped actually. I it just well, it took on a life of its own very like quickly. Just, yeah, it just became the thing to one of the things to do around the holidays in Richmond. Yeah, well, by the third year, I think after the third year, I decided not to do the bus tour, but I kept doing the judging and getting the houses, and I put out an official list. And so okay. the newspapers and style and TV stations, everybody would run my list. As you know, here's the official list of the houses. Yeah. Which, you know, somehow, like you said, it turned into this thing of this is what you do. And the bus and limousine companies picked up on it and they all yeah. started taking, you know, they'd call me and they'd get the list and then sell the tours and take people around. And it just became this really big thing. And here it is. That was in like started about 85. Okay. It is still huge in Richmond. Yeah. Um. So by the second or maybe third year, did you have people who had never decorated their homes before now decorating their homes to get oh, in yeah. on it? Yeah, yeah. I, I heard it. Well, people, you saw that happen? Well, the two things that happened is after the first year, even people who had the house, had the decorations suddenly started incrementally increasing them. It's like, oh, gotcha. The, 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 is, the, the, yeah, the, the war was on. Yeah. Which is yeah. actually the third year we did the tour, but I didn't award prizes because I started to feel like it was getting too competitive. Mm. You know, people were really like, you know, they were going out of the way to do it. And then even the second year, I remember going to one house and saying, and you got second place. And the guy goes, we only got second. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, <laughs> this is not right. We're losing the spirit here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're missing the point here, guys. Exactly. You know, it's it's funny that you bring up Frank Hudak. Um, so 85, I was 10, and I had three friends that lived... Was that the Thousand Oaks neighborhood? Yeah, so right? Worcester Court in Thousand Oaks neighborhood. My friends Jason and Bryce and Ryan and their older siblings starting around that time and you know into our teens, that was one of their jobs every year was helping Mr. Hudak hang up the lights. <laughs> uh, so I know that, you know, I know Wistar Court and I know that street from going to Jason and Bryce's houses and just picturing that first time that they crammed two 55 passenger wind buses into that cul-de-sac. It was a cul-de-sac. That was us, It wasn't yes. even a street. Just picturing that and having Mr. Hudak go, what the hell is going on? Yep. And it's been, ever since then, a nonstop stream of cars into that neighborhood. And that neighborhood, if nobody's ever been before, is that whole neighborhood is a dead end. That yep. neighborhood, at least at the time, went nowhere other than and, into that neighborhood. And he so. actually was the inspiration for that holy shit factor. Because if you remember, when, the, you, when it's lit, when you're driving down whatever street it is, when you turn on Worcester Court... All yeah. of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see his place has always looked kind of like you took, you know, a million lights in a helicopter and dropped them dropped on the it. house. And when you they turn went that so corner, high. yeah, and you turn that corner and you just really go, holy shit. 
And yeah. that's, that was my inspiration for that category. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Are, is, are, do you have any regret and any, do you have any regrets that you didn't, I don't know, like monetize that further, you know, charge the bus companies for the maps kind of thing. Like, it seems like you've done a lot of stuff that wasn't really about the money. Like, you know, I mean, sure, like the Lacoste shirts and, and Earl the Dead Cat, but it seems like a lot of it was just because you are a creative person who wanted to get his creativity out into the world. Is that right? It depends on how you look at it, or it's just stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, you're right. I mean, there's been an awful, I've always been a matter of, you know, doing things because I wanted to do it. I mean, even getting yeah. into the novelty gift items, it was just because I had an idea for the yeah. Crocker shirt one day sitting in a bar and said, I'm so sick of everybody wearing these preppy Izod shirts. The only one I'd ever wear would have a dead crocodile on it. And I decided to do it. You know, sure. now that one, you know, worked and did pretty well. But, you know, that's exactly what so much of it was. And I thought, looked at the tacky Christmas tour and not seriously regretted some of those things. But I'm jokingly said, you know, I should have charged for the list, franchised it, you know, yeah, you know, connected sold it, with, sold it to win, whatever. Oh yeah, there would be because there were years where I looked at it a couple of years later and said, you know, I'm doing this and I'm just putting out the list and it's fun and that's cool, but you know, there are a whole bunch of people making good money off this thing, right? And I'm not making a penny, but yeah. you know, I had fun, sure, and that's what it all came down to. I was yeah. having a good time. I was doing things I like to do and that were fun. And, you know, the fact that I have, you know, no retirement now, well, you pay your price. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do now? Well, I'm still doing some writing, mostly, mm -hmm. um, and I got into doing a lot of web design as an offshoot of the writing, kind mm -hmm. of morphed into web development, web design, and web, you know, building websites. And I'm still doing a bunch, a, a good bit of that. Um, the last year or two i've gotten much a couple of years i've gotten much more back into playing music oh really cool i i yeah i have your i guess it's facebook you post them on but yeah i i, en I enjoy your occasional solo songs that you post yeah and i thanks and i've done but i've gotten and i've gotten into self-recording which you know mm. it's because it started kind of in the whole lockdown where you know everything everything was getting strange i had been playing with a couple of people um and we actually played a couple of gigs, you know, just low level gigs, just, and we were kind of getting into it and then everything locked down. So yeah. for a good while, we couldn't play at all. Then we would play a little bit. And so there was a phase where everybody was doing a lot of online videos of playing and stuff. So I started doing that. And then about a year and a half ago, I started doing self-recording. But I started doing that and I've got actually six songs that they're available on Spotify and all the streaming services Yeah, under mad, it's mad, no mad, M-A-D slash N-O slash M-A-D. Okay. Um, which I kind of had to use something different because as soon as I started thinking about it, you look on Spotify under mad dog, it's like, oh, there are only 4,300 <laughs> mad dogs on Spotify already. <laughs> so I had to come up with something else. And the funny thing, so I was going to use Jet Trash, which was the name that I did. Oh, yeah. Algae Water. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's a new age jazz band using that name. <laughs> so I ended up as Mad Nomad. And 
I've got six songs up there now and I've been doing more of it and I've been focusing cool. more on that, um, fun. which is fun and, you know, getting some play and especially yeah. th- some of it thanks to people like Paul Chagru who, you know, still put it on out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice to have those. Nice to have those buddies still floating around out there. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Not that, you know, not that that does so much and not that I like tapping into it, but I got, you know, I sent some things to Paul and he's played a couple of them on there. Call it a little favor. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, one more thing and then I'll let you go. Um, you were one of the first people that I ever met because I had a very sheltered childhood, um, who had tattoos. Um, there was a guy that I went to high school with. His name was Will Seidensticker, and he had some tattoos, and I thought that was cool. And then I met you at VGO, and you came in one day and you had shorts on, and on the back of your calf was a UPC code. Right. And I asked you about it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this is how I remember it. You had a UPC code on the back of your calf, and I asked you what the UPC code was, and you said it was for deviled ham. Is that right? No, but you're on the right track. Okay. It was actually for Vita pickled herring in sour cream. Even better. Okay. And the re, <laughs> well, when I was going to do it, I mean, the story behind that one was I was originally the concept I decided I wanted a UPC code, basically with the thought that, you know, one day we'll all have UPC codes, you know, because I didn't have the foresight to realize there would be facial recognition. I thought we'd need to be barcoded. Sure. Um, so I was going to put it, if I remember, I was going to put it on the back of my neck or something. And then I decided, I don't want it too yeah. visible. Yeah. yeah. Let's keep it a little more subtle. The original idea was to do spam for no, no real reason, other than it was ludicrous, because I hate sure. spam. And then when I looked at, I bought a can, or a, I went to Safeway, looked at a can of spam, and the barcode was really ugly. All of a sudden, I'm looking at barcodes for aesthetic reasons. And oddly, it turned out, and yes, I did have bite of pickled herring and sour cream at home. Sure. Um, I do eat the stuff. And the barcode was real, looked really good. So I did yeah. that. And I took it down to, I had a couple of other tattoos before that. And I took it down to a guy in Yorktown who did my tattoos. <laughs> and I said, can you do this? And he looked at it. And he, I remember he goes, Sure, I've never tried it. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but you know, if it would actually scan, but let's do it. I, I'm aware that they don't scan because a couple of years later, my very first tattoo was on my calf, my right calf, and it is a barcode. <laughs> um, and fortunately, at the time, I had I had the, the luxury of access to the internet, and I found a barcode generator. Right. Right. And I punched in, because I think a barcode needs 10 or 11 digits. So I put a couple of extra zeros at the beginning and then entered my social security number and got that tattooed on the back of my leg. Nice. And the reason it's my social security number is because eventually we're all going to be barcoded anyway, so I might as well do it now. Oh, there you go. Same reason (laughs) I did mine. Exactly. (laughs) And mine actually, because it was a real barcode, the guy who did the tattoo told me, insists, he said, one condition, am I doing this? You have to try and, sc- once it heals, you have yep. to try and scan, try and scan it and it. let me know if it works. Yeah. And I went in the Safeway a couple of times. I remember going in and there were people behind me, a bunch of people. <laughs> I'm like, no, we can't do it. And one <laughs> night I went in there and there was no one behind me. And this girl was checking, was the checker and she looked kind of cool. And she's checking my items. I said, 
would you mind if we scan my leg? And she goes, no, no problem at all. <laughs> and as I put my leg up on the scanner, she had this look like she suddenly realized what it was I said. What was happening, yeah. And, you know, she pushed my leg back and forth a couple of times, and there you go. It worked. No, yours worked? Oh, yeah. Well, because it was a real item that they carried. Yeah, I've never gotten mine to register. No shit, well, that's amazing. Because the only way they will register is if it's in their computer system. Well, this was a delight. And I told my partner earlier today, I said, I'm going to talk to a guy this afternoon. And I haven't, I literally have not spoken to you directly since probably 1995. Yeah. So it's a, it's a delight to see you and that you're doing well. Well, it's fun. It's been great fun talking to you. I don't know. I'll be interested to hear uh, what you end up doing with this and how it, <laughs> you know, how it gets some kind of focus or fits into it. I looked earlier today, just quickly, I went to the, the site with your podcast. Yeah. And I was looking at the name going, Tim Timberlake, Big John Trimble. Am I going, Jesus. What am I doing with all these heavy hitters from Richmond Radio? Jesus. They might have been the big fish, Mad Dog, but for a little fish, you definitely left a big wake in that Richmond Radio pond. Thanks for talking to me. Turns out Mad Dog lives in the Bay Area, not too far from my cousins and my brother in San Francisco. So maybe next time I'm out there, I can hook up with Mad Dog again. I haven't seen him, uh, like I said, since I think 1995. So it's it's been too long, uh, but man, he can't. <laughs> Actually, I got to the Zoom meeting a couple of minutes late, and it was behind another screen on the computer. So uh, Mad Dog got to eavesdrop on me for a couple of minutes while I got my act together uh, <laughs> on my end. And uh, I realized there was a shirt underneath my web browser, and I'm like, wait a minute. Is that Mad Dog? And there he is, just hanging out, waiting for me. Uh, a little bit older, but still Mad Dog. Thanks for listening to uh, another episode of Give Me Radio or Give Me Death, my love letter to uh, the Richmond Radio I grew up listening to. My name is Chris Paget. I uh, produce and record and edit all of these. It's a labor of love, not unlike a lot of what Mad Dog did over the course of his career. And as an extra bonus treat, I pulled from a YouTube link that Mad Dog sent me, Algae Water. Enjoy. Tell your story, baby. I'm gonna tell you about my town. I'm gonna tell you now your story, baby. It's all around my town. Yeah, down by the river. Down by the slime in the river James. Oh, that's what's bubbling, baby.
You know, 